0: John uses the phrase, by this we know, or some iteration of that phrase, 13 times. He also uses the phrase, I write these things in order that, nine times throughout his first letter. In these 22 statements, we find that John's purpose in his letter is to explain to the church the difference between authentic believers and false followers. Authentic believers are those who confess Jesus as the Son of God, who has come in the flesh to save the world from its sin. Authentic believers know they have confessed Jesus because they obey the Lord, love their Christian brothers and sisters, have confidence before, and have received the Holy Spirit who reveals the truth of Jesus to them. All right, mom and dad, if you're looking for your kid, you can just kind of stick your hand up or you can yell at them, or they're in the hallway. You can grab them, um, come back in here, uh, hopefully. grab your Bibles go to first John chapter 3 I just want to start off by I know a lot of those kids just walked out into the uh the, the hallway, but some of you are in here. Um, and that, that was awesome to watch, right? Like what, I want our kids to know, those of you who can hear me, um, what, what you do matters. And um, that was encouraging and challenging for us. And parents, what I wanna to say to you is what you do matters too. Um, I don't know if this was easy to get them up to here, or maybe you were tugging them along and trying to bribe them. Um, but it's something, I think a moment of celebration, right? You've got your child up here leading worship and it shows that you're making a difference. Uh, and then for, for my wife and I, this week was a big week. One, baseball season started. Uh, that's huge in our household. Braves are two and one. So um, we only have 178 more games to go or 79. But even bigger news, my wife and I announced this week that we are expecting our first child. And so we are, um, Yeah. It's been, it's been something that we've been praying for, anticipating, uh, really saying, God, what's taking so long, and then uh, he gave us something. So we can't wait to hold that bundle of joy and chaos and everything in between. Um, I joke often that I'm the crazy uncle in the spiritual family that I get to see what's going on in families' lives and give advice and walk with you. But then I get to go home and not deal with stuff that you have to deal with. But now it's all about to change. So every emotion that you can feel, I guess we have felt. So we're, we're pumped, but less of that and more of what we're doing today. First John chapter three, looking at verses 19 through 24. So to get us thinking about our passage on the screen, you see a picture of the book, The Book of Heroic Failures. Now this book is written by Stephen Pyle and it's meant to be a book of encouragement that sometimes in life you feel like a failure, you feel inadequate, and it's basically written to say you're probably not as big of a failure as the people in this book. And a lot of funny, humorous stories. And so um, a couple that he mentions, one, in 1968, there's a, a, a true story of a uh, of a coup taking place in in Italy and and they wanted to overthrow the government in Rome. And so a bunch of people gathered together outside the city and the plan was to stampede through the city, get to the center of town and then overtake the government. The problem was many of the people in the, the coup were not from Rome and they didn't know how the city was laid out. So as they began their journey throughout the streets, they got got lost on the back roads and they never actually made it to the center of the city. And it wasn't until five years later that the Roman government heard of what took place and began to investigate the potential coup. In 1978, the British firemen went on strike. So to take care of the needs in the the, the country, the British army decided to be responsible for putting out fires and helping those in need. And one morning there was an elderly, elderly lady whose cat got stuck in the tree. And the elderly lady called the fire department and they rushed out the British army and they showed up quickly, and very quickly rescued the cat from the tree. The lady was so thankful that she invited the, the firemen or the army members into the, her house. They had tea and, and biscuits or cookies. And after they finished with their treat, they got in their truck, they backed out of the driveway and they ran over the cat and killed it. Then in 1977, there's a story of a thief who thought he had the master plan of how to rob grocery stores. He would grab all of his items, put them on the little cart belt. It would travel to the cashier. She'd scan the items. And once she had told him the price, she would put money down. He would put 10 pounds. She would open up the register. He would leave the 10 pounds, take the register and run off. Put his money down, grab the register, ran off, realized he gave her 10 pounds, he stole four pounds 37 and lost over five pounds that day. People, whether honorable or dishonorable, had a goal and they failed. As followers of Jesus, we have a goal to simply follow Jesus. And sometimes we feel like failures. In First John chapter three, verses nineteen through thirty-four, the main idea of our, text, our our text is this: We have confidence before God because God is greater than our guilt. We have confidence before God because God is greater than our guilt. We look at our passage and what, or through the whole book of First John, and what we've been seeing is some black and white challenges, challenges that are meant to assure the church that they're following Jesus. But I think John senses that as they're reading through this letter, that rather than being assured of their salvation, they begin to question it. And maybe the same things happen for you. That you're hearing the command to love your spiritual family, the command to believe in the gospel, the command to obey God's commands. And all you see in your life is your lack of faith. Maybe all you see is your disobedience. You're stuck in that one sin or those multitude of sins that you just can't get over the hump with. Or maybe this week you were challenged last Sunday to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and God gave you opportunity and you failed to do that. And so here you are this morning and maybe you felt this already, but you're just wondering, when's it gonna stop? I just need some encouragement. I need someone to build me up. I need someone to reassure my faith is genuine. And that's what John seeks to do. So 1 John chapter three, looking at verses 19 through 20, or 24, sorry. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. given us. The first truth we see this morning is God's character assures our hearts. God's character assures our hearts. Now, there's two ways that we can read 1 John three nineteen through 24. Um, and it's been one of the more disputed sections of 1 John. Uh, the minority view is that John isn't actually encouraging his readers. He's warning them. And what he's saying is, look, I've told you to love one another in word and deed, not just in speech and in language, but, or or indeed in truth, sorry. But what can happen for some of us is we we can easily get to the point in our lives where it's like, man, God, I'm not loving people. And John's going to say maybe that, look, if you're not loving people, your heart's going to condemn you. And if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And God's going to judge you, and God's going to punish you, and when God does that, you're not going to be able to pray to Him, you won't have confidence that you believe in Jesus, and you won't have the Holy Spirit. One of great warning. But what I think John is doing, and what the majority of scholars think John is doing, is he's actually encouraging them. See, when we take that word of heart," the, the, the heart is the center of who you are. It's the center of your emotions. Like we like to say, "I love you with my whole heart." meaning I love you with every fiber of my being. We encourage people to say, hey, follow your heart. Do what you think is right. But what does Jeremiah say in Jeremiah 17, 9 about our hearts? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, when our heart is meant to encourage us and build us up, up, what our heart actually does is it condemns us. It shows us all the ways in our lives that we've failed. And so what does John wanna do is he wants to reassure their hearts. He wants to set them at ease. He wants to say, hey, I know your feelings tell you, you're not doing very good. I know you have doubts and insecurities, but rest on the truth that God is greater than your heart. How does our heart condemn us? Four things I wanna point out real quick. One is with perfectionism. Some of us in here, we're perfectionists. and in, in, at OBU or in seminary, whether it was just getting my master's or doctoral stuff, one thing that I struggled with was being able to get B's and C's and D's. Um, I am an A or F student. Now I got B's but I don't know how to get a beat because all I know is to do everything that I can do. And I never think I'm doing enough, right? I'm gonna give complete effort. And some of you in here, you're like that. You're a perfectionist, right? You don't wanna ever mess up. But what happens to those of us in here who are perfectionists is if there's a chance that we might fail, we're not going to even try. Because not trying and not failing is better in our minds than trying and failing. We're not lazy. It's not that we don't wanna learn. It's just that we think someone else can do it better. And I'm like that. Rather than taking the time to learn something, I'm just gonna hire someone else and say, hey, come to my house and help me do this. A few, uh, a few, about a year ago, my wife and I, our dryer broke. And one of the few times in my life where I said, I'm gonna figure this out, I am going to fix it. I did all the research and everything said I had to change this part. I don't know what that part's called anymore, but I had to change this part. So I found it, I bought it, I got it. And I, did, I tore that dryer apart, replaced it, put it back together, And the same clanking sound started again. And at that moment, I was like, nope, I'm done. Not going to try to fix it. We'll get that new dryer that you've been asking for. And we got it, right? I don't want to fail. What happens in our spiritual lives is we tell the Lord, God, I'm not going to sin. I don't want to sin. And then you sin and you just give up. God, I'm over it. God, I said I'm not going to commit that sin anymore, but then I did it. Therefore, it means I'm not a follower. I'm not going to do anything. God, I just quit. And it may not be perfectionism, it may just be unrealistic expectations, right? Like we talked last week how some of us in here, we put our faith in Jesus at an older age and most of us put our faith in Jesus at a younger age. So remember as a kid, you believe in Jesus, but what happens, and we kind of mentioned it last week, even as a follower of Jesus, you are given more opportunities to sin as you get older. And there are temptations you face today that you never faced as a child. You never faced as a teenager. You never faced as a young adult. And you're questioning the genuineness of that salvation. God, how can I be a follower if I'm still not where I expect to be? Number three, it may just be a misunderstanding of truth. Some of us, we got saved at a younger age or maybe older but we attended a church or attended a small group that maybe it didn't really teach us the truth, um, that didn't really challenge us in our faith. And so eventually we found our way to another church. And for once we were pushed and we were challenged and we began to question, is my salvation genuine? And in the Southern Baptist world, we sometimes struggle with that. And we always need terms to define significant moments. And so we've coined the phrase rededication. Right? Like whenever I was eight years old, I put my faith in Jesus. And then when I was 14 years old, I really began to take my faith seriously. And then when I was 15 or 16, I sensed God's call to ministry. And so I pursued that in faithfulness. And it's easy for me to say which moment was my true salvation because each moment I began to learn something new about the nature of God and my salvation. Because I didn't know when I was eight years old what it meant to be justified, what imputation meant, what sanctification meant, what glorification meant. That meant nothing to me. All All I knew was I was a sinner and I was going to hell and God was worthy of my worship. And so if I believed in Jesus who died on the cross for my sins, I would be saved. So I did that and I believed and from that moment on, God began to change me but I went through a season of my life where I wrestled with when was my salvation genuine? Because if it was later then I wasn't following the Lord and believers baptism. And so I wrestled with that and I finally got to the point where it was, look, it's just a process of growth. And so just cause you're learning new things doesn't mean you just got saved when you learned those things. And then finally, sometimes our doubts come from just mental illness And our struggle comes from mental illness. And it may be as we get older and you get dementia or Alzheimer's, or maybe it's a season right now of anxiety or depression, but what can easily happen as our minds forget or maybe doubt the promises in the presence of God, we get to a point where we wonder, God, am I really saved? Because we think that those with faith don't struggle with mental illness, but that's not the truth. And what we see in all of this, that no matter where we're at, the promise we have is not within us, but outside of us, and it's Jesus Christ. That was to say, God is greater than our hearts. I love that. And my favorite verse in the Bible is James four, verse six. Um, go ahead and go to the next slide. That's verses four through five. But um, at the end of that, he says what? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And what he's talking about is how we live with spiritual adultery and we have this temptation to abuse and take advantage of the people around us. And we are at enmity with God, but what is God's response to that, to our sin? That he gives more grace. So the comfort and the hope that we have is that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Knowing everything shouldn't make us afraid. It should give us comfort because God knows the real you and in his character of grace and mercy, he has saved you. And we rejoice in that. That my salvation is not dependent upon the things that I do or how I feel every single day, but it depends on God. And so we rejoice in Romans 8:1 that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't come in here as people who stand condemned, wondering if we're gonna make the cut. We know because God forgives us of our sin in Jesus Christ, I can come before him confidently and boldly. And I have assurance that he has saved me. The second truth we see this morning real quickly is that God's consideration of us assures our hearts. The fact that God considers us assures our hearts. Look what he says now, starting in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Once we come to an understanding of God's character, our hearts don't condemn us. We now have confidence. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It means to be to speak boldly in the presence of someone. And confidence isn't flippancy. It's not demanding anything. It's reverent awe, but it's understanding that you are welcome to God's presence. And when we have confidence, we can go before God and ask Him whatever we want. That word scares us sometimes. Whatever. You know, being a student pastor, Middle school boys, I love you, but I don't know how often we were like, hey, what prayer requests you got? Man, I really am praying I get that Xbox for Christmas, right, right? We've been there, I want want those shoes. As adults, what do we pray for? I just pray I wake up and there's a million dollars that's supposed to be in my bank account. I just pray I get a letter in my mail that says my mortgage has been taken care of, you don't have to save up anymore. Like we want those things, but that's not what whatever means. Whatever isn't speaking to the breadth of our prayer requests. Uh, Jesus adds in John 14, 13, that whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In my name is what's important in all of that. In my name means in the character or the essence. Remember Genesis chapter two, whenever uh, Adam names all the animals, why does he name the animals or how does he name them? Based on their what? Their kind of being, their essence. And then he looks at Eve and he says, woman, why? Because she is of the same essence. She is like Adam, who is a man. Fast forward now to Matthew 28. And Jesus says that we baptize one another in what? The name, not the names, the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The name meaning the essence. When we pray to the Father and we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying in according to his being, according to his character. And so this whatever here, it's not speaking to the breadth of these prayer requests, it's speaking to the depth. In our struggle to love one another, to obey the Lord, there are times in our lives where we really don't know if God will be there, right? We, we, we can pray for forgiveness. In fact, I think a lot of us, sometimes we have more faith that God will forgive us and he will sustain us. It's evident whenever you pray for God to forgive you before you commit that sin, right? God, forgive me for what I'm about to do. Because we know that God will forgive us, but we lack confidence that God will sustain us. See church, what John wants us to understand is that God's prayer of whatever is you being able to get to the depth of what that request really is, to love one another, to obey his commands. And that whatever, that deep prayer request you have, God wants to answer it. And it assures us of our salvation. Why? Because I can look at all the other ways in which God has already sustained me. And that's what he's saying at the end of that verse in verse 20, 22 because you keep his commandments and do what pleases him. It's not that if you obey God, he answers you. It's because you're obeying him and you see that evidence now of your obedience, it gives you hope and encouragement now to pray to the Lord and seek the Lord to help you now. Listen, the same grace that helps you in your workplace is the same grace that helps you in your home. It's not two different graces. It's the same grace that sustains you in the way that you talk about people is the same grace that sustains you in how you think about people. That God isn't dishing out different graces. He's giving all of us the same grace so that you and I can walk in righteousness. And so we go before the Lord knowing that he considers us now because he's considered us in the past. Then all the ways I pray to the Lord for help, he has helped me. Therefore, I now know he'll help me today. So I don't lose hope when I'm struggling with sin, but I find confidence in the fact that God has already walked with me. The third truth we see is that God's commandment assures our hearts. We have confidence and assurance because of God's commandment. What does he say in verse 23? And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Every now and then I'll mention the Greek text and I try not to do it too much. I don't wanna confuse us or muddy the text, but sometimes it helps us in understanding what the author's doing. Um, So he gives us two commands here, the command to believe and the command to love. And they're written in two different Tenses. A believe is written in what we call the aorist tense. And all that means is it's a tense that has no time. It's undefined. It's not, it's not past, present or future. It just is. And believe is written in the aorist tense. So what John is saying is that your state, who you are, what you do is one who believes. I don't wake up each day trying to believe in Jesus. I just do. It's my state of being, I believe in him. But love in the present tense means a continuous action, means every day I have to make the effort and the intention to actually love people. Because as much as I love Jesus, loving people isn't always easy. And I have to, in my belief in Jesus, allow that to flow into my love for one another. And we can't, we can't have one without the other. And that's why he says in verse 23, his commandment. You notice that? He doesn't say commandments, he says commandment. There's one command, but it's two sides of the same coin. If you have a dollar bill and you were to cut 45% of that dollar bill off and you took that other 55% to the bank, you know what they'll do? They'll give you a new dollar bill. That the federal law is as long as you have at least 50% of that, that currency, they're gonna replace it with a, the, the, the full bill. But we sometimes do that with the Lord. God, here's 55% of what you've asked me to do. And God's not gonna say, oh, hey, that's good enough. Let me take care of the rest. No, what God is saying to us is we give him the full 100% of belief and that belief if genuine leads to love. And the belief also gives us confidence when we have legitimate guilt. So we have talked about illegitimate guilt, the way our heart convicts us when it shouldn't. But sometimes we have legitimate guilt and it's good. You know, one of our attitudes sometimes in in the church is God has forgiven me, therefore what I do doesn't matter. That it doesn't matter how I talk to my spouse, It doesn't matter in the ways that I sin against my spouse. It doesn't matter in the way that I talk about other people, how I lie to people. It doesn't matter if I'm cheating. Like like that, who cares if I'm doing all that? God does. One, your spouse cares, but two, God cares. Like, let's not get to the point where we look at our spouse, look at whoever says, look, I know I've sinned against you, but God's forgiven me. So you just kind of need to get over it, right? Like don't try that. It's not going to go over well. Listen, when we are convicted of our sin, when we do something that we shouldn't do and you feel bad about it, good. Feel bad about it, but don't rest in that bad. Give it to the Lord. Hand it over to the Lord and rejoice in the fact that you have been forgiven. What did we learn in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, early in this sermon series? That, if, that God is faithful and just, that if we confess our sin to us, he is going to forgive us. So when you sin against the Lord and you sin against other people, confess it to Jesus Christ and he will forgive you. And because you believe in Jesus, you have assurance Doesn't mean you know everything. Doesn't mean you figured out everything in the Bible. You know everything about the Lord. It doesn't mean you completely understand how Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. It simply means that you believe that Jesus Christ is sinless, died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead. And in that placing of your faith, you are saved from your sin. And find assurance and find grace that God is going to walk with you and disciple you and teach you. And the final truth we see is that God's companionship assures our hearts. His companionship assures our hearts. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. In Ephesians 1, 14 through 15, Paul adds, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." In the first century, and even before that, whenever a document was written, people often had their own seal, just like a signature. And they would write a document, place it in the envelope, and then they would seal that envelope shut and they would seal it with a little, with the wax on the back. And every person often had their own seal. And so to make sure, to guarantee that someone had not forged this letter in your name, you would put that seal and it would tell the people receiving the letter that, hey, the person who claims to write this is actually the person. And if the seal doesn't match up or it's a little bit different, then the people would realize that, hey, this letter is a forgery. The Lord has given us a seal and that seal is the Holy Spirit. And how do we know we have the Holy Spirit? By the way in which he convicts us. You know, I've wrongly heard that conviction is kind of like having a triangle in your stomach. And that every time you sin, that triangle just kind of spins around and it pokes and it prods at at your gut. And it hurts at first, but over time as you get more used to sin and you do it more often, the edges of those corners kind of round off your gut becomes a little bit more calloused, and eventually it's more like a ball bouncing around in your stomach, but your stomach is so callous that you can't feel anything. In my experience, talking with people and discipling people is sure, maybe we get to a point where sin doesn't seem to hurt as much, but never in our lives do we get to a point where the conviction completely goes away. That what I find most often is that people will say, man, I've been fighting this and justifying this and running from the Lord all my life, but God just won't quit poking and prodding at me. You know why he's poking and prodding at you? Because obedience is assurance of your salvation. And because you're living in sin, you get worried, you get fearful that you're not saved. And God's saying, look, if you would just obey, if you just submit to the spirit, if you just submit to my commands, you're going to find assurance. So if you come in here this morning convicted and challenged and you believe in Jesus Christ and you put your faith in him, don't sit here saying, does that mean I'm not saved? Sit here saying, man, God loves me. his conviction is a promise that he wants me to walk in holiness. You should be fearful whenever we talk about a sin and you're doing it and you don't feel bad about it. That's when we get scared. That's when we say, you know what, God, I've been doing what you've been telling me I shouldn't be doing. And I don't have any guilt, any regret, any shame. That's when we say, God, does that mean I don't know you? But as long as you're wrestling with it and you're convicted over it, it's evidence of your salvation, but God doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to now walk in obedience. I love what John does in, in, in verse 24, when he says spirit, that we don't actually know if he's talking about the Holy Spirit or he's talking about just the spirit we have within us that God created us with. And John does it on purpose. Uh, that it, it's, he's talking about what we call a double spirit. And what he means is the Holy Spirit who lives within you testifies to your spirit, your conscience, and leads you to walk in righteousness. So that Holy Spirit you have, that, 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 that pushing, that challenge you have, is assurance of your salvation. These Gnostics, these opponents, they don't feel guilty. They don't have shame and they're walking in sin. Why? Because they are of the world. And so what do we are to do? Well, number one, are you burdened over something this morning? Burdened over some illegitimate guilt? Are you struggling? to forgive yourself rest in the character of God, rest in his consideration of you, his commandment that he's given you and his companionship. Don't leave here worried and fearful that you might not know him. Understand that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you still have a ways to go in holiness, but you are still a follower of Jesus. But then second, Maybe there's conviction and maybe there's challenge because you really don't know Jesus. Maybe there's no conviction and no challenge because you don't know Jesus. And so in a moment, I'll pray, we'll watch an announcement video, and then we're gonna talk about the blue wall. But right now I wanna mention it. Listen, if, if, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, if you sit here right now and say, you look, I don't know him. I don't have assurance. We wanna have a conversation about what it means for you to put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done to save you from your sin. The rest of us, when we get done and we go eat our lunch, man, we eat that lunch in peace and comfort, knowing that what Christ has done is enough. And we rest in that assurance, knowing that he loves us and he saved us. Let's pray. Father, God, my prayer right now, first off, is for those in here who know you. God, those who have put their faith in you. God, my my prayer is that right now your spirit will go in overdrive in his work and just give unexplainable comfort and peace and reassurance to let your children know that they know you. God, may they not be fearful that they, they've never put their faith in you. God, may they have confidence before you to ask whatever they need to ask to fight sin. God, may they leave this place assured of their salvation. And God, second, for those in here who don't know you, God, I pray your spirit will get to work in their life and that they will know without a doubt that they've never put their faith in you. God, I pray that you will wreck their conscience in a way that they have to respond. God, I pray that they won't buy into Satan's lies thinking that they can't repent, that they can't turn to, to you. But God, what I ask is that your spirit will move in such a way that they know the only response is to come to you in faith. And God, may this be a day of revival of salvation in their lives. God, you're a God who is good and a God who is great. A God who reassures us with his presence. And God, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.